listening to this sermon from Garden City Methodist Church. We want to invite you to worship with us each Sunday at 10.30 a.m., either in person or online. You can come to our beautiful sanctuary at 62 Varnado Avenue, Garden City, Georgia, or you can worship with us online as we stream our services at GardenCityUMC.com. Today, we're looking at another one of Jesus' parables from the book of Luke. It's a pretty famous one. It's in Luke chapter 16, starting at verse 19. Here's what it says. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so that they will not also come into this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither they will, will they be convinced, even if someone raises them from the dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, a lot of people read this parable and uh, want to use it to teach about life after death, but what heaven and hell are like. But I'm not convinced that that's what Jesus was doing. I don't think Jesus told this parable in order to teach us theology about what happens after we die. I think Jesus told this parable to his audience, who were still the, the religious teachers and Pharisees, and he did it so that they would be able to see their own stubbornness and self-importance. You know, Jesus didn't t tell the, the parable of the sower to teach about farming. And he didn't tell the parable of the lost sheep to tell a lesson about shepherding. There were lessons embedded in those stories. And so there's a lesson embedded in this story. And it's a lesson about self-importance. I had a wake-up call to my own self-importance this week. <clears throat> the other day, I was driving Roger, I was driving home from taking Roger to school. <coughs> Excuse me. And I witnessed a car wreck on uh, 25, right out here in Garden City. I wasn't in the, the wreck, thank goodness, but it was the car behind me and the car behind them and the car behind them that had, had been in a fender bender. 
And so I stopped. I pulled over to that little gas station there, and I went out and checked and made sure everyone's okay, and I waited for the police to come. And doggone it, the police did not pay one single lick of attention to me. And I was there for, you know, half an hour. Nobody said anything to me. I was pushing an hour, and they had just ignored me. One firefighter came up to me and said, were you involved? Are you hurt? And I was like, no, I was just a witness. And he was like, okay, and then just walked away. I started getting my hackles up. So I've been waiting here for like an hour, and nobody has asked me anything. I could have kept driving. I could have just kept on going. But no, I did the right thing, and I stopped. And what did I do that for? Because nobody's asking me any questions. I'm an important guy. I'm a pastor. I've got stuff I could be doing. And I just got, I got all up into my own self-importance. And then I remembered that this was the passage I was teaching on this week, and it was like the Holy Spirit hit me like the car that hit the guy two people behind me. Uh, he said, Matt, you are the least important person here. There are people here who are dedicating their lives to public service, and they're just doing their jobs. They don't owe you an interview. There's people here whose lives have been upended by this today. They're going to have to deal with the fallout of this incident for weeks or months from now. There are people who have been injured in this wreck that are going to be dealing with this potentially for years or the rest of their lives. You're the least important person here. Be patient and stay in your lane, Stout. So I said, okay, guy. And I did. But it's so easy to allow self-importance to creep in. For us to start believing our own hype about how important we are. Especially for us preachers. Man, it's, it's easy. But God, and through Jesus, Jesus was telling this story to, to put a pin in this self-importance of the people that were listening. Of these religious leaders. Think about how this rich man was so invested in his own self-importance. This rich man had the, the resources to feed Lazarus every day in the story. He had the resources to, to make sure that Lazarus never went hungry and he would not have missed it. It says he ate sumptuously every day. He could have eaten really well every day and fed Lazarus and Lazarus could have had a good life and the rich man wouldn't have missed it. But he didn't do it. It was like the gate outside of his property was this impenetrable barrier from those who had money and those who didn't have money. The class barrier between these two individuals was uncrossable. So Lazarus who is interesting, Lazarus has a name in the story and the rich man doesn't. Kind of shows you what Jesus is thinking. Lazarus lives this miserable, sad, gross life where the rich man feasts sumptuously. And even though the physical distance between them isn't that great, the, the class barrier is impenetrable. But then they die. And then the impenetrable gate that existed in life 
between the rich and the poor has become an uncrossable chasm in death. And the, the crazy thing to me about this is that this poor, the rich man is in Hades getting burnt and tortured and he still won't give up his own self-importance. He still believes that he's better than Lazarus. Oh, Abraham, send Lazarus over here to get me a drink. It's like he assumed superiority over this poor man, even though the poor man was in Abraham's bosom and the rich man was in Hades. That he assumed that he could still count on Lazarus to serve him and to give him a drink. That Lazarus could be the one that would cross over into Hades as if he would ever want to do that so that he could get a drop of water to drink. Even after death, even from hell, the rich man still believed that Lazarus was beneath him, was less important than him. Talk about stubbornness. Treated him like a servant. And then when Abraham said, no, man, you can't. <laughs> I'm not going to get Lazarus to cross this chasm for you. Then Lazarus said, okay, then make, or, or the rich man said, okay, send Lazarus out to be my message boy. Make Lazarus my errand boy to go and talk to my brothers so that they don't end up here too. <laughs> he still didn't seem to understand that Lazarus was not inferior to him. He still couldn't see that his class and his status and his money did not buy him a first-class ticket into the kingdom of God. He thought he was a first-class citizen in hell while Lazarus was a second-class citizen in heaven. I mean, it's just wild to me that he would be that stubborn. But he was. He thought he could order Lazarus around even in circumstances like that. And so if he hadn't gotten this message by now that his self-importance was nothing, then nothing was going to do it. His brothers weren't going to understand how to repent because the rich man still didn't understand how to repent. If your brothers are like you and being in hell won't get you to change your mind about your own self-importance, then nothing's going to change their mind about their own self-importance. True humility was beyond this rich man. He just couldn't do it, even in Hades. So it was too late for him. And I guess Abraham figured that if it was too late for him, his brothers weren't likely to do it either weren't likely to humble themselves either. And so his Christmas carol stunt wasn't going to work. Because if they don't get from the prophets that God is no respecter of status and money, then they weren't going to get it from a ghost. My friend Daniel Dean and I have this ongoing disagreement about what the best version of the Christmas carol is on TV and movies. Daniel swears that it's the 1984 George C. Scott version. And that version has a lot going for it. I'm not knocking that one. George C. Scott does a great Scrooge. But I know better. I know 
that the definitive screen adaptation of A Christmas Carol is The Muppet Christmas Carol. It's the best one. It's so good. I love it. It's, it's got jokes. It's got songs. But it's also got a lot of that original Dickens dialogue. And, and it really faithfully tells the story. Um, so, I mean, you'll never convince me that it's not the best one. But I love the part where Marley, that first ghost, visits Scrooge in the Muppet version. Because they, like, just next level amazingly cast Statler and Waldorf to split the part of Marley. If you don't know Statler and Waldorf, they're the two old guys that sit in the balcony and heckle the Muppets. And so the, the ghost versions of Statler and Waldorf come and they just read Scrooge the riot act. And I don't know, it's hard to tell what the best song of that movie is because they're all great. But I mean, they're singing, we're Marley and Marley, avarice and greed. We took advantage of the poor and just ignored the needy. And they're, they're telling Scrooge, if, you're, if you keep going on your path, you're going to end up like us in these chains in the afterlife. And I think that's, that's what the rich man wanted Lazarus to do. He wanted Lazarus to be the ghost of generosity past for his brothers, to warn them about what was going to happen. He wanted them to... Marley and Marley, his brothers. And I think if, if Lazarus could have pulled the Charles Dickens and become the ghost of generosity past for this rich man's brothers and warned them about the rich man's fate, there's a couple things I think they would have told those brothers based on this story. I think they would have told him that true discipleship, true faith, takes place in a context of generosity. You cannot divorce a personal piety, a personal love of God from the call to be generous to your neighbors. You can't just get away with thanking God for all the blessings that he's giving you and then hoard those blessings and keep them away from other people around you who need them. That's not the way the kingdom of God works. But how often oh, do we think about how hashtag blessed we are when there are people all around us in need that we're unwilling to share with? We have this tendency to divorce personal piety from call to generous discipleship, and that just doesn't cut it with God. True discipleship takes place in a context of generosity. I think Lazarus would have warned them that you cannot afford to close needy people out. I had a great opportunity when I was in college to take a mission trip to India. And one of the things that really just wowed me about India is that they had these beautiful, fancy, high-rise apartments. And you could tell that this is where the rich people lived. And then directly adjacent to those apartments were shanty towns where people literally lived in cardboard boxes directly next to them. And that this, this visual of this income disparity bowled me over. But we don't do that here in America. The rich people build, kind of make a way to make sure that we don't have to look at the people that are needy. I remember... Uh, when I lived in Brunswick, my friend uh, Wright Culpepper was opening this, uh, this 
space for the homeless where they would provide um, showers for homeless folks and, and places where they can have a telephone and work on a resume and uh, just get a meal. And there were people in the community that fought him tooth and nail on it because they said, well, if we, if we make a place where homeless people feel welcome, then Popo's people are going to come here. And Wright was like, yeah, they got to go somewhere. Right? They, you can't just, you can't out of sight, out of mind the needy. Because they might be out of our sight, but they're never out of God's mind. We cannot afford to not in my backyard the needy. Because God loves those people. And the bigger a chasm, a bigger uh, uh, impenetrable gate we build between ourselves and the needy, the bigger of a chasm we build from ourselves and God. Because God said that he loves the needy. Whatever you do for the least of these, you also do for me. I think Jesus meant that. When there's a chasm between us and the poor, there's also a chasm between us and Jesus. Being rich isn't a sin. It's not a sin to have wealth. But it is clear from Jesus' teaching that he has a special place in his heart for the poor. And if we want to be near the heart of Jesus, we will leverage our wealth to share with the poor. Because the last thing I think that Lazarus would have shared if he could have marlied up the rich man's brothers is that Jesus is no respecter of class or wealth. He just doesn't care about that stuff. All that we do when we focus on that stuff is that we build up our own self-importance. We are no better than anybody else. God calls us to a life of humility. Humility means that we look at our neighbors and we say, I we might be in different circumstances. We might have a different class. We might have all kinds of stuff different about us. But Jesus loves you as much as he loves me. And I am not better than you. Jesus does not want us to live a life of self-importance. He just doesn't. So at the end of A Christmas Carol, no matter which version you watch... Scrooge rejoices that it's not too late. The spirits did it all in one night. I think this is the feeling that Jesus was trying to provoke in his listeners when he told this story. It might be too late for the rich man, but it's not too late for you and for me to humble ourselves. Because the beautiful thing about this parable is that while in the parable, Abraham wouldn't allow Lazarus to come back and warn the rich man's family, we are a luckier bunch. In fact, there is a man who came back from the dead to teach us this very lesson, and it was Jesus. We are the Ebenezer Scrooges in this generosity carol. We're the ones who getting a warning from beyond the grave, from across time and space, that Jesus, who desires nothing more for us to be close to him, to close the chasm between us and God, desires us to humble ourselves, to let go of our self-importance, 
and to identify with the poor. So the question for us today is how are we going to live? Are we going to keep the poor at a distance? Are we going to say out of sight, out of mind, not in my backyard? Are we going to buy into the hype of our own self-importance that we're the most important person in the room? Or are we going to humble ourselves and be generous with the time and the resources that God has blessed us with? Jesus is calling us to humility. He's calling us to lay down our self-importance. And he's calling us to identify with the poor. And the good news is that it's not too late to repent and believe. Let's go to God in prayer. Jesus, I'll admit that I am so often guilty of believing in my own self-importance. Believing that (laughs) for whatever reason I deserve good things more than other people do. I am so often guilty of increasing that chasm between me and the people who need to hear about your love. God, let me close that chasm. Give me the grace to repent, to humble myself, and to believe that you earnestly desire all people to believe and to live for you. Give me grace to live in humility, Father. Kill off my self-importance this morning. In your name I pray. Amen.